If you have Bibles, I would encourage you to turn in them to Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 32. Uh, Paul is concluding the argument that he has been laying out for a gospel people in Romans 9 to 11, this particular section. Uh, from the end of Romans 11 and Romans 12, moving on through the end of the letter and for the rest of the summer, we will be looking at the next section, the last section of the book of Romans, talking about the implications. How do the people of Jesus, the people of the Messiah, live out of the power of the gospel, the righteousness of God? And I know when I started studying this section, you know, I was a little intimidated. I have to be honest. Romans 9 to 11, that is a difficult section. Very rich, very densely theological. How is I going to explain all this stuff about Israel and election and all of this stuff? And I have to admit, it has been incredible to see the heart of God. And how appropriate that the choir would sing about holy is the Lord, because that word holy means completely other. And the fact that God is other, it's easy for us to think about things like creation and stuff like that, but there is nothing that makes him so other than his mercy. I'm not sure we fully understand. I think still down deep, we tend to think of us as, yes, we sin, we, we fall short of the glory of God. Other people maybe fall a little bit shorter than we do. You know, we, tend, we don't realize how desperate we are and that our only hope is the mercy of God. And so we are looking at this text this morning, Romans 11:25 to 32, and looking at it through the lens of our merciful God. Friends, let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards, the as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves us. Well, I haven't been up here yet, so I have not had the opportunity to say to all you moms, all you grandmoms, great-grandmoms, I'm sure, out there, happy Mother's Day. And I am sure that my mother is watching on the live stream. And she'll hear from me this afternoon, but I want to wish her a happy Mother's Day as well. And I want to ask the question, what does mercy have to do with mothers and with Mother's Day? And at least in the case of my mother, everything. You know a story's coming, right? Now, I've told you before I'm the oldest of three boys, 
Now, my mom had to be incredibly merciful to live in our house because truth be told, and I bet you she'll agree with me on this, she didn't have three boys, she had four boys because there was my father in the midst of us with everything. If there was clowning around to be done, if there was wrestling happening, if there was roughhousing going on, yeah, she had four boys. Whether it was taking us to the emergency room, I think there was at least one season of our lives that they knew my mom by name. Hi, Dana, here she comes again. Which son are you bringing now? Or whether we were causing havoc, my mom had to be incredibly merciful. So I'm a little embarrassed to share this particular story with you because guess what, I'm on the guilty end of this story. But I venture to say that this illustrates well my mom's merciful heart. There was one time when all of us boys, all four of us, were roughhousing in the kitchen. Not a big kitchen, and if you picture this, there's the stove and the stovetop and all that, and an awning over top, and my mom is going, settle down, easy now, come on boys, quit roughhousing, okay now, stop it, I mean it, let's go. Of course, what are we doing? We're ignoring her. We're continuing on. We're roughhousing until we get rough enough that we accidentally knock her into the awning of the stove, kind of broke her face. Didn't break any bones, fortunately, but it was a painful incident for her and an unfortunate one for us. Now, what did she do? We were guilty. We lived out this text. We were consigned all to disobedience, all four of us. What did my mother do? She showed us mercy. She forgave us. She led us back into her heart. And so I definitely wish my mom a happy Mother's Day. Now, Paul begins this text in verse 25 lest you be wise in your own sight. What is he doing? He's addressing the Gentiles again, warning them against pride and arrogance. And he says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. In other words, he's telling us what this text is about. I want you to be aware of something. I want you to know something. So, friends, you know what Romans 11, 25 to 32 is about. Paul says, I want you to know this mystery. The mystery of God's mercy and its implications in our lives. So let's ask this text, what does God want us to know about this particular mystery? And we find two things. We find, first of all, that this mystery is about one family, and we find that this mystery is about God and his mercy. I don't want you to be unaware of the mystery, Paul says. This mystery is about one family. One of my heroes of the faith is a man by the name of John Perkins, who was born in 1930. He's a minister of the gospel, civil rights activist, and he has lived an incredibly, absolutely incredible life. He worked in racial reconciliation, and he's worked in community development, and he has been used amazingly by the Lord. Back in the 1990s, he wrote a book, and the book was titled, He's My Brother. And it was about John Perkins as an African-American man, and it was about his relationship 
with a particular white man in the Deep South. And I read about this book and their story this week while preparing this message, and here's a little excerpt out of it. It says, he grew up in the Deep South and learned from an early age to hate all black people and to believe that they were part of a great conspiracy to take over the world and ruin everything that the USA had stood for. His heart, as he later came to describe it, was filled with hatred and anger, and he was ready to do anything to fight for his vision of what should happen. One day, the opportunity came, and he took it. He killed someone. Some while later, while serving his prison sentence, he began to read the Bible. All sorts of things began to happen to him deep down inside. And God's grace began to heal him, enabling him to repent and to reject the entire package of lies he had believed. And with it, he saw all of that hatred and anger begin to melt. He was eventually released and began to devote his life ever since to working for the Christian gospel, not least to bring about reconciliation between black and white people. He worked with John Perkins. And the story is told in this book that they wrote together, He's My Brother. These two men couldn't be more polar opposites. These two men, naturally speaking, you would never think of them getting together, called one another because of the mercy of God, brothers. Now look with me at verse 25. One little word, highly significant, because Paul says, lest you become unwise, lest you become wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. What does he call them? Brothers. The Greek word is adelphoi. It means brothers or brothers and sisters. What is he doing? He is addressing Gentiles and Jewish people, and he says they are one family. Paul frequently speaks of this mystery in the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, he says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Friends, this is a constant theme in the New Testament. Gentiles are fellow heirs. Now, why is this significant? You realize and you read this, some of you read the Gospels, Gentiles were called by their Jewish folks, they were called Gentile dogs. We're talking polar opposites. They were the outcasts. They were the marginalized. They were the forgotten. They were the ignored. They were outsiders. And Paul doesn't just say, well, yeah, you know, because of the gospel, they get to go to heaven. He says, no, they are of the same family. They belong to you and you belong to them. Fellow heirs, members of the same body. This is God's vision. One worldwide family made up of diverse peoples from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Unity in diversity and diversity in unity. This is God's beloved beautiful community that he is forming for himself. This is the contrast society that is possible within the church and is not possible anywhere else. 
all of the polarization, all of the division that we see in the world, the church is called to be different. That's what holiness means. I would love to think Amy and I got together and really planned everything so well together. Kind of God's providence, it worked out that way. But the word holy means different. And the church is called to be different. We are not called to mirror the world. We are called to be God's agents in transforming the world. And friends, if it doesn't happen in the church, it's not going to happen. I've said this before. God does not have a plan B. This was always part of the original calling of Israel. Always part of God's vision. Remember, we, and I refer to this because this is such a key text in interpreting the rest of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, when God commissioned Abraham and he said, in you, in your family, this is why Jesus is the greater Abraham and Jesus is the true Israel, but in you, all families, all the diverse peoples of the earth shall be blessed, find their blessing, have ashes turned into beauty, as Isaiah 61 says. It happens through this family. The family of Abraham, which is today the church, made up of all these diverse peoples, is called to be the solution to the problem of Adam and the problem of sin. One writer put it this way. He says, Abraham and his descendants are somehow to be the means of God putting things to rights the spearhead of God's rescue operation. Through Abraham and his family, God will bless the whole world. Shimmering like a mirage in the deserts through which Abraham wandered was the vision of a new world, a world blessed by the Creator once more, a world of justice where God and his people would live in harmony, where human relationships would flourish, where beauty would triumph over ugliness. But then he goes on to write, immediately we see the problem. What happens when the people through whom God wants to mount his rescue operation, the people through whom he intends to set the world to rights, themselves need rescuing, themselves need putting to rights? What happens when Israel becomes part of the problem, not just the bearer of the solution? What happens when all Jews and Gentiles alike, every human being, this is so much the message of the whole letter to the Romans, we are all in the same boat. Nobody is more righteous, more holy, better than anyone else. We are all sinful and in need of God's mercy. It would have to be by God's mercy. And God's mercy always had in view the formation of a covenant family, a diverse worldwide family which would be in union with him and would belong to him. Now before I move on to the next point, let me just make one quick application or implication of this particular truth. We are so good at compartmentalizing things, and we have to get rid of all compartmentalization. We have to promote more integration in our lives. One of the things we tend to compartmentalize is our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationships with one another. The gospel does not do that. At the heart of the gospel is reconciliation as the fruit of God's mercy, which means not only are we to be reconciled with God through Christ, 
but we are reconciled to one another through Christ. That's why in just a few minutes, when we go to the Lord's table, I'll read out of 1 Corinthians 11, and when it talks about discerning the body, Paul does not have in mind only we do as individualistic Christians. We think, oh, I need to discern the body. I need to make sure I recognize my relationship with Jesus. Me and Jesus. It's all about me and Jesus. Paul has in mind both vertical